Hey guys, in today's video, I'm gonna be doing my last video on uh, the topic of Atlantis, at least for a while, and then I'm gonna move on to new terrain. Um, but once again, uh, just to plug it, this is uh, my zine on it called Atlantis and the Origins of Civilization. It overviews Manley Hall's teachings on the topic of not only Atlantis, but the idea of the seven ages of man and overall on the idea that um, evolution moves in cycles. In today's video, I'm going to be playing some clips from various uh commentators on Atlantis and then doing some commentary on them. So we're going to be doing uh, some clips from Graham Hancock, Randall Carlson, um, and a few others. And so I'm going to be playing the clips and then I'm going to be giving commentary about how Manley Hall interprets this topic. Uh, so to begin with, I have a few clips from Graham Hancock uh, that he kind of overviews the basic gist of the Atlantis theme. And so let's get started. We're off the coast of the southernmost tip of Japan. I've come to investigate an underwater mystery that could simply rewrite history. This looks like a temple, but the last time it was above water was 10,000 years ago. If it is man-made, it's the oldest known structure on Earth. I believe it could prove the existence of a lost civilization. Almost 600 myths collected on every continent speak of a global flood that swept away an advanced civilization. This is the basis of the Noah's Ark story. I believe that such stories record real events that shook the earth at the end of the last ice age. The myths say there were survivors, ancient mariners, who rode out the flood in great ships and colonized new lands. So the first clip is from a documentary where he is exploring various sites across the world. Uh, and relating them to the idea of the of an ancient civilization, i.e., an Atlantean civilization. And at this particular clip, he's do doing a dive off the coast of Japan, and and finding what looks like a underwater temple or monument, something that's clearly man-made. Um, and then he notes that it, last time it was above ground. This temple was ten uh, thousand BC. And so a couple notes. Number one, this 10,000 BC date is one that we're going to find over and over again uh, throughout this series of clips. Um, and you also find it in Manley Hall's teachings. In Manley Hall's teachings, the 10,000 BC period was the date that he gives. It's right, it's right around 10,000 BC. So you'll hear anything from 9,000 to 11,000. But right around that period was the final collapse of the island of Atlantis or the capital island of Atlantis, which was called, uh, or what Manley Hall refers to as Posidinus, uh, based on the root word of Poseidon, who was the, the patron deity of this civilization. Uh, but Manley Hall remarks that it was a mercantile 
civilization pattern. Uh, and so that it was distributed throughout the world. It wasn't just one island. It was, there was a capital island, and that's where the sort of leadership and the priesthood had their base and the main temple was. But there was vassal states throughout the world. And so this idea that there was a temple in, J in Japan associated with this Atlantean civilization, it kind of implies a va one of the vassal states or one of the... Um, one of the network of civilizations that were established by this core central civilization. And that core central civilization is the one that collapsed during this 10,000 BC uh, period, this catastrophe. Uh, Manly Hall also notes that the fall of Atlantis is not something that just happened once. It was an archetype that happened over and over again. And so by archetype, it was an experiential template that the Atlantean pattern of humanity kept falling into. And, uh, and so the, the final fall was this 10,000 BC period. And so that final fall of that Atlantean civilization pattern sort of sets the stage for the uh, complete move into what we now call the Aryan era. So the difference between the Atlantean and the Aryan is a, a different design of a, a human mind-body system. So the idea is that the, Ar the Atlantean pattern was the fourth major design template for, human for the human being, and the Aryan was the fifth design pattern. Um, this design pattern is what we see on Earth today. It's not about ethnicity. It's about your psychology and your physical anatomy. For example, whether or not your pineal gland is open or closed. In the Atlantean, the basic concept was that the pineal gland was open and there was a more introverted, uh, intuitive type of consciousness that was more, I guess I would describe it as more of like a hive mind. Um, and so the, the priesthood had a huge role to play in that civilization pattern because they were the ones who were sort of like the queen bees. They were the apex of this psychological sort of hive superorganism type activity of the Atlantean. Humans today are still capable of that, but a lot of that happens subconsciously. Um, our direction of our consciousness is oriented outwards toward the material world and the pineal gland is closed. And the difference between the open pineal gland of the Atlantean and the closed pineal gland of the Aryan is a type of karmic compensation that we're living through with the idea that we were all once Atlanteans. Everybody who's living today was once a soul who passed through the Atlantean age and now we're passing through this Aryan age with the necessity of learning and building up certain type of experience patterns. And so this is what we mean by archetype. These archetypes are, are uh, a progression of forms and the souls who occupy those forms are able to gain certain experiences unique to each of those forms. And these experiences are required for the soul to progress in its uh, journey back towards uh, spirit. And so that's the basic 
philosophical teaching of Manly Hall and how he makes sense of this idea that there was a, a lost civilization. It wasn't just an advanced civilization. It was a different pattern of a human being. And that pattern came to an end so that a new pattern could be uh, born. Um, so that's sort of the background. Uh, now we're going to be going into... Oh, uh, let me just make another comment. Uh, in that second clip, uh, he talks about how there's 600 different myths that um, point to the fact that there was a previous high civilization uh, that was fallen, that was destroyed by a deluge. And so typically, as we're going to be exploring upcoming clips, when we think of Atlantis, we think of a specific pathway that that story and that myth comes down to us, which is from Egypt to to um, the Greek lawmaker Solon um, to Plato, and then from Plato is where we really get that story from. But really, that's not the only place that the Atlantis uh, myth comes from. We actually find the Atlantean concept alluded to all over the world. And there's a deluge myth all over the world. In fact, in my interview with Dr. Debashish Banerjee, we talk about how there is a, a deluge myth in Indian philosophy having to do with uh, the first, or maybe it's the third, incarnation of Vishnu. Um, but anyway, you find it in the Americas, you find it in Africa, um, you find it in Asia. It's all over the world. So the theme of the the Atlantis myth doesn't just come to us from Egypt and through Greece. It, it can be found all over the world. Um, and so I just want to make that point. So now let's go into uh, the next clip and I'll come back with some commentary. When we analyze Plato's description of Atlantis, Plato basically gave the, sink, the date of the sinking of Atlantis as 9,000 years prior to Solon, the, the Egyptian, the, the, the Athenian poet and statesman, Solon, did a 10-year exile in Egypt. And it was Solon that brought back the tale of Atlantis and presented it to the, to the Greeks. And Solon basically made that journey around 600 BC. So if you add the 9,000 years to the 600 BC, we come up with a date of about 11,600 years ago for Plato's date for the, the, the demise of Atlantis. Well, it's very interesting that the date 11,600 years has been independently discovered by geologists looking at the tempo of various catastrophes that have occurred on Earth. The history of man may be far longer and stranger than we think. The Great Pyramid may indeed not fit in with what we believe about the past and the nature of the world. Thousands of years ago, someone measured the earth with remarkable accuracy and recorded this information in the dimensions of the largest and possibly the oldest stone building on the planet. 2,000 miles from anywhere, Easter Island is the remotest inhabited spot in the world. Yet it emerges from legend as a place of refuge for the survivors of a terrible flood that had destroyed the earth at the end of a prehistoric golden age. The only real event that fits the bill 
is the sudden end of the last ice age when melting ice caps flooded the globe. Many coastal areas which could have supported an advanced seagoing civilization would have been inundated and the people forced to find new homes. The geological record is fairly well established that around the 11th, 12th, 13th millennium, something cataclysmic happened over the face of the earth. The ice melted, producing tremendous climatic changes. There were enormous earthquakes all over the place. Many, many animals of the ice age went extinct. Suddenly, the sea levels rose precipitously 100 meters. Uh, within the space of days. So when you put all of this together, you have a scenario and a very well-established, deeply scientific, geological scenario for dramatic Earth changes everywhere over the face of the planet. That puts us back to the time when the last ice age came cataclysmically to an end. It changed the face of the Earth and I believe destroyed a great civilization of prehistory. Easter Island today is just a tiny windswept volcanic peak protruding above the almost limitless wastes of the Pacific Ocean. But before the end of the last ice age, things were very different. Sea levels were almost 400 feet lower then, and an observer sitting here, instead of seeing endless wastes of ocean, would have seen a vista of valleys and mountain peaks stretching away towards the horizon. Around 13,000 years ago, the melting ice sheets unleashed a catastrophic flood upon the Earth. Historians dispute the myths of an advanced civilization. They tell us there were only primitive tribes of hunter-gatherers then. No agriculture, no architecture, no writing no cities, and certainly no advanced civilization. Yet if such a civilization had existed, its ruins would be underwater, completely out of sight. My quest is to look for the traces of its survivors. Surrounded by the deeps of the Pacific Ocean, Easter Island is a mystery made of statues. Almost a thousand of them, weighing dozens of tons each, distributed all around the island. For hundreds of years, they were quarried here in Ranoraraku, hewn out of the living rock in this great crater rim. And then suddenly, for no apparent reason, the work stopped. It's as though the artisans just downed their tools and went away and never came back to it again. Archaeologists see it all as a great folly, which came to an end as follies do. But the ancients weren't stupid, and they didn't do all this for nothing. All right, so in the first clip we heard from Randall Carlson, just kind of reiterating what I was saying about the descent of the Atlantis myth from Solon, um, and also discussing the dating aspect and then after that, we hear from Graham Hancock, and he's talking about the uh, Easter Island as being a good case study of a, a mystery that we can't solve today um, without 
reference to the fact that there was a pre pre deluge uh, civilization and a whole uh, different template of the earth uh, that existed. So a couple notes. Number one is that the the theme that Manly Hall teaches when we're talking about Atlantis and also this evolution of races is that the each race is corresponds with a certain des, earth design. So each human design goes with an earth design. And uh, so partly what this means is that the continental structure of the earth was different during the Atlantean age. And sort of this day, the idea that there was a global cataclysm and, and a deluge associated with the fall of Atlantis uh, has to do not only with the ending of one cycle and one design pattern of the human being, but also a transformation of the earth so that the, the continental distribution was different. Um, I also want to note that Manley Hall uh, writes that the Atlantis, uh, the main Atlantis island uh, was sunk. Uh, meaning it uh, sort of like collapsed into the core of the earth. And this is something that you see over and over again with this the, the esoteric teachings of the transition of different ages is that these, uh, is that continents, they sink down and then they elevate up. So the plate tectonics theory is not supported by esoteric philosophy. Um, I also want to note that the foundation of esoteric philosophy is that the esoteric part goes in uh, or exists in relation to an exoteric part. And the difference between the two is inner. Eso means inner and exo means outer. So esoteric knowledge is sacred knowledge and it is by definition <clears throat> held by the few. The priesthood, it's sort of... Uh, it has a highly it's highly significant information that has a sort of quality to it that is uh, of the Dharma, meaning it has to do with the underlying pattern of existence that's playing itself out. And it's something that you have to raise yourself towards learning. You have to elevate yourself to uh, come in contact with it and to learn esoteric knowledge. Exoteric knowledge is sort of like public knowledge. It's uh, the outer thing that everybody would have, uh, that everybody believes. So a good example of the, of the difference between exoteric and esoteric, if you think about the pre-Christian age as sort of pagan societies, think about Greece, for example, you would have the majority of, of people, you have, so you have one mythology, right, with the gods, and you have, you know, stories about the gods. So the exoteric would be people who are just living on the level of the myth of these gods and sort of uh, keeping these fables in mind in order to guide their life patterns and in, in, in order to guide themselves ethically and morally. But also there was a certain pattern to the myths that coincided with the seasons and with nature. So it kind of taught the person how to live. Um so that's the exoteric. The esoteric is when you start to unravel the specific relationships between the symbols of those different various mythologies and you're trying to decipher what the gods actually mean as in terms of archetypes. And uh, and so you're you're extracting different 
sequences of knowledge from that mythology and relating them to astrology and alchemy and mathematics. Uh, all that stuff is within the mythology. And, but that higher level of understanding of the myth is getting into the esoteric. And so that would have be that would be done by uh, the small sort of sects of philosophic schools that existed at the time. It would be done by the priesthood who existed within the temple. And so to elevate yourself from exoteric to esoteric, you have to go through the rites of initiation. So that is the basic pattern uh, of how exoteric and esoteric relate to each other. So now bringing it back to these clips, when we're thinking about why is it that we're taught one version of history that leaves out all of these mysteries that Graham Hancock and Randall Carlson and Manley Hall are exploring in their work, it's because the sort of school book, textbook history that we're taught is, is exoteric. And so it deals with the outer surface of things and it tries to explain things purely through this outer sort of superficial thing. And part of that being that certain critical information is, is occulted, mean, meaning it's made esoteric. It's made secretive. Occult means secret. And so if something becomes occulted, um, such as this deluge myth, that means it is taken out of the exoteric body of knowledge and instead it becomes um, of the paradigm of esoteric knowledge. And what is considered exoteric in one age and what is considered, considered esoteric in one age, that can change. So the idea is that gradually things that were esoteric before become exoteric meaning that like our whole age of science so science was once something that was not part of the exoteric knowledge of mankind now it is part of the exoteric knowledge the, the use of science and the existence of scientific knowledge and mathematical knowledge that used to be exclusively esoteric i.e within the priesthoods and within the philo philosophic sects but now today it's sort of co commonly taught but yet the full science isn't taught. We're still getting an exoteric version of science, but gradually more and more of this is revealed. So in time, these ideas of Atlantis and you know a pre-Diluvian civilization will become exoteric. But we're not at that stage yet. We're in a transition period where that's still happening. So the key bits of information and in the, in the, in the great mysteries and the great data points that are taken out of the body of common knowledge are, um, you know, there's an archetypal pattern to this. It's not just that, you know, the, the powers that be are trying to do this. There's a greater, I mean, that is that kind of goes and coincides with it because someone's obviously going through all this trouble to mask up these mysteries. But there's an arc underlying this within the conscious of humankind, there's an archetypal program playing itself out. And that program has to do with the uh, archetypal difference archetypal difference between esoteric and exoteric knowledge and the gradual motion of of human knowledge as we evolve as uh, a great collective being um, so now let's get into the next clip Atlantis is significant to understanding the secret societies as it is said that all the mysteries believed by them have their beginning in this ancient empire well, it's this concept that there, that there is ancient, mysterious, magical knowledge uh, which we initiates only can provide to you. 
and goes back to the time of Atlantis. All knowledge, the power to heal, the power to destroy, godlike powers hidden within secret societies. The ancient mystery religion is said to have been carried in secret to preserve the teachings through the Dark Ages. It's believed the mysteries were adopted by the Knights Templar, who brought them back to Europe when they returned from the Crusades. The um, Templars came over to the Holy Land, and this is where the Templars got a lot of their kind of outre heretical ideas um, that, that later on got them in a lot of trouble. In England, the mysteries were adopted by men like Dr. John Dee, and later by Sir Francis Bacon. When Bacon sent his secret societies to the New World, the mysteries came with them. In short, the ancient mysteries represent the pagan beliefs of Rome, Greece, Babylon, and Egypt. And before that, it said to Enoch, who was the great initiate and king of Atlantis, um, and it said all the teachings come from Enoch. All right, so this is kind of building off what I was just saying about esoteric knowledge. Um, this clip tracks the descent of knowledge from, or esoteric knowledge from the priesthood of Atlantis to the priesthood of the modern age, the Aryan age. Um, now, the existence of this priesthood today is esoteric or occulted which is a difference uh, in, in this sort of in the Piscean age, the Christian age versus the pagan age. In the pagan age, you had the temples and their priesthood. Maybe it wasn't known by everybody, but it was available to be visited. And I think in a, a lot of civilizations, you like in the Americas, for example, you knew that there were people <clears throat> you knew that there were advanced humans who had access to advanced knowledge that, that there were holy men so to speak in our modern age the existence of holy men or saints and sages is not part of the exoteric body of knowledge at least in the west <clears throat> in the east you're much more likely especially in somewhere like india you're much more likely to uh, the common person is much more likely to have knowledge of the existence of saintly people uh, who are have experienced the sort of divine realms or have had experiences of God consciousness and who teach uh, a higher form of knowledge. The sort of a guru archetype, for example. In the West, we're much more cynical about that, maybe for good reason, but nonetheless, we're not grounded in reality in the way that we look at the potentials of human life were very much um, distracted and oriented towards a materialistic view of reality, which is false. So th this whole story that was just laid out in this clip is a descent of esoteric knowledge that goes from the Atlantean priesthood through down to the secret societies Part of the reason we have secret societies that are esoteric or occulted is because of the relationship that esoteric knowledge and the sort of philosophical groups who were the custodians of it after the collapse of the pagan order of civilization and the collapse of the temples and the corruption of the priesthood during that era, 
the pre-Christian era, that when you had the rise of the Orthodox Church um, and the the rise of the political ambitions of the church, the spatio-temporal ambitions of the church, uh, they persecuted very heavily those who those other groups who had knowledge, esoteric knowledge. Part of the reason being that the within the Orthodox Church was a was was kept esoteric a certain body of esoteric knowledge that the church wanted to keep for itself and have unique access to um and so you have things like the persecution of the mystic christian sects uh persecution of the templars for example uh, the gnostics etc so that's sort of the back part of the backstory of why this no- body of knowledge has gone become occulted now, something I'm going to be getting into in, in the future is how I think that this has played itself out uh, today because I, I feel like the esoteric body of knowledge and the reason for so much secrecy and occultism today has to do with the need to preserve and protect the uh, the sort of alchemical knowledge of physics that could be used to design and engineer things like not only UFOs but also uh, – and but also energy platforms like the stuff that Tesla was talking about, but also the types of weaponry that like has an existential capacity to destroy uh, also in the way that Tesla was talking about, but that we also see hinted at throughout the 20th century, the existence of this type of uh, etheric knowledge of the, of the etheric energy realm and how to engineer that. Um, so this is something that I explore in my three-part documentary series called the Secret Space Program, and um, and I think that that's the reason we have this massive deep state infrastructure is part of the mechanism of making a cult this body of knowledge, um, and it's and and sort of my feeling is that during this period of worldwide social breakdown of the economic order, the social order that we're seeing today, the fact that we have coinciding with that, the sort of release of knowledge about UFOs makes me want to think that um, maybe where we're going towards is a revelation of this giant infrastructure to protect um, the existence of etheric knowledge or the knowledge or alchemical knowledge of the ether. And um, and that's also the reason why we have this massive push to centralize control, centralize information, and do like a, a global surveillance state or whatever is part of the the, nece- the the necessity to have in place in order to make public and release this new paradigm of energy. But we'll have to explore that more in another in other videos. But anyway, that last clip was one that uh, was exploring the descent of esoteric knowledge from the priesthoods of the ancient age to beginning with the, the priesthoods of Atlantis going through the priesthoods of the pagan era, now down into the secret societies. And of course, Manly Hall is the great uh, revealer of that tradition in, uh, in the 20th century. And so we have to understand that as an esoteric philosopher, he was the great master of teaching us not only the core fundamentals of what that body of knowledge, uh, the philosophy of that body of knowledge looks like, but also 
the story of how it descended down uh, from the ancient times to modern times. Um, but again, we'll go into that more as we keep going through, as I keep doing uh, videos and, and episodes on the podcast. So, um, in the, in the, in these next few clips, we're going to be just going further into the evidence that there is a secret canon of knowledge that has to do with, um, sacred science. There has been some kind of a universal system at use in the ancient world. And these various cultural groups, whether it was the Egyptians or Sumerians or Mayans or the Hopewellians or the megalithic builders, had access to some universal system from some source that was outside their own cultural context. And I suggest that the source of that goes back into deep time that takes us back beyond the threshold of known history into the realm of mythical history, which means we're going back like into the Ice Age, back into the Pleistocene, to use the geolog geologist term, back into the, to the deep recesses of the human tenure on planet Earth, uh, whose only memory has come down to us, not in the form of recorded history, but in the form of myth. Well, I think there's no question from the evidence that we have, particularly in the monuments, because they're the most enduring record, that their knowledge of, uh, of the cosmos, of the stars, the star patterns, the cycles of the cosmos, was enormous and exact. We have enough evidence today to verify that. The way that the ancients uh, reflected that information was in a picture thinking or a mythological thinking. For them, there was no contradiction, as there is for us, between exact astronomical knowledge and mythological stories, because they thought in a mythological way. That's the way their brains worked. These ideas were traced back by the Egyptians themselves to the remote golden age called the first time, and to a single temple believed to have been built by the gods. This whole temple was modeled on a precise region of the sky known as the Duat. The Duat occupied a special place in ancient Egyptian religion. It was the place through which our souls must travel after death. It was ruled over by the god Osiris and identified with specific constellations of stars. So the ancient Egyptians sought sacred knowledge of it through the study of astronomy. Covering every square inch of the ceiling are images of all 12 of the constellations of the zodiac. I believe that the knowledge of the zodiac expressed in this temple was present in Egypt from the earliest times. When we look at the precise astronomy reflected in ancient Egyptian architecture, isn't it obvious that the lost prehistory of this people includes millennia of navigational experience? I believe that the survivors of the lost civilization I'm searching for settled in Egypt thousands of years before the pharaohs. 
Their knowledge and their memories of the world before the flood were passed down from one generation to another until hieroglyphs could set them in stone. This is the temple of Edfu in Upper Egypt. Carved on its walls are acres of hieroglyphic texts which speak of a time when the gods lived on an island surrounded by a vast ocean. A terrible flood destroyed the island and drowned almost all of its divine inhabitants. There were only a few survivors, amongst them seven sages, also called the seven builder gods, who chose to settle in Egypt. Egypt seems to have started out at its height and gradually declined. Where did the knowledge come from? The Egyptians, both ancient and modern, remain curiously silent on this topic. There are two different stories told about this same land. Two different histories. Almost as if there were two Egypts. This ancient land has always partaken of a dual nature. The public face of Egypt is known the world over and told in every history book. But there is another side of Egypt that is not so widely known. Egypt is also a land of secrets. Another history, a secret history. Tales of Egypt as the inheritor of deep wisdom and magical ability from an even earlier culture. It is the account of the Egyptians themselves. This alternate history is echoed by parallel accounts from the myth and history of other ancient cultures as well as myriad secret societies and occult sources. The remarkable number of parallels in these stories provides a unique window into this other Egypt. Alright, so that series of clips I think did a good job kind of reiterating what I was talking about, the difference between exoteric knowledge and esoteric knowledge. In particular, you hear John Anthony West uh, in his documentary Magical Egypt, I think it's called, uh, just talk about how there's two stories of Egypt. There's the textbook version of Egypt which is the exoteric version, but then there's this other version that has to do with illustrating and highlighting the astounding mathematical and geometric knowledge that is evidenced in their temples and evidenced in their mythology and in their higher and then the um, structure of their hieroglyphs. And that's something that is not taught because it would just overturn the whole Darwinian paradigm that is one of the founding principles of modern exoteric science. So uh, I like those series of clips a lot. Uh, I only have uh, a couple more that I want to share uh, before we get out of here today. So the last two are have to do with Graham Hancock in Egypt. In the first one, he talks with Robert Baval about the uh, mystery of the pyramids uh, and their relationship to the constellation of Orion. And then the final one is one I really like a lot. It has to do with the mythology of Orion. And uh, he translates a text from one of the hieroglyphs uh, from one of the pyramids 
and it, you'll notice a lot of underlying Christian themes having to do with the resurrection, the resurrection mystery between Osiris and Horus. And, and this is something, Egypt is something I get into uh, in my Atlantis zine. The basic story behind Egypt uh, that Manly Hall tells is that the priesthood from Atlantis, basically there were two priesthoods. There was one branch that went to India and they became the foundation of what would become the Aryan pattern, the modern pattern. And then you had another sect of priesthood that is most closely related to this, the, the, the priesthood that was in control during the final collapse of Atlantis uh, migrated mm -hmm. to Egypt. The ones that survived migrated to Egypt and became and kind of reinstalled a sort of mini dynasty. And this was the first dynasty of Egypt. So Egypt at the time was a colony of Atlantis, but it became the center of Atlantean wisdom for a period of time. But Manly also notes that it was sort of the corrupted priesthood that came to Egypt, not saying that they were all bad or that their knowledge was no good, but he does indicate that a lot of the fallacies and the theological uh, issues that would happen with the corruption of religion and science in our current age the dharma of that or the karma coming in from Atlantis was implanted through Egypt and that a lot of the the dark uh, aspects of like population control, mind control, things like that uh, are evidenced in the repeated collapse of Egyptian civilization over thousands of years uh, in, the, in the sort of pre-Christian era. And that so a lot of their corruptions went, uh, became sort of endemic and the different civilizations that they influenced, particularly Western civilization. So um, you have that story, and then you also have the story of the rise of the Osirian sect, which has happened towards the very end of this Egyptian uh, story. Uh, so it kind of comes pretty close to the Christian era, um, the rise of this Assyrian sect, and I overview Manly Hall's teachings in my Atlantis zine on the significance of the Assyrian sect. And so in this last clip, you're going to hear Graham Hancock give some of the basic teachings of Osiris and Horus and how, um, how it was interpreted by the Egyptians and I think it's very uh, beautiful and inspiring. So uh, after that, I'm going to end the video. Thanks for tuning in. Um, I have another one coming up soon. And then I'm going to have a whole spectrum of videos and uh, episodes and content and a whole new zine that has to do with depth psychology and the astrology of uh, the current moment in time and linking the two. So uh, check back uh, for those. It'll be coming up uh, throughout the month of December. So thank you. In 1994, the Belgian engineer Robert Boval published the details of an amazing discovery which overturned a century of scholarship. Boval showed that some of the oldest pyramids were laid out to match the patterns of significant stars. The architects who built all these structures belonged to an elite school of priests. It was a cult based in Heliopolis, long since buried under the suburbs of modern Cairo.
the Prince of Heliopolis who designed this project, project were servicing a very important cult. Mm. The belief that Egypt was in the image of heaven. Right. That the whole land of Egypt was a magical cosmic land. And that the Pharaoh was a representative of the cosmic order on this land. Now, a Pharaoh was considered to be the son of, of Osiris, yeah. living on earth. When he died, he joined back the gods in the sky, the cosmic land which was in the image of Egypt. Mm -hmm. The pyramid texts tell us that there is a Nile in the sky, which is obviously the Milky Way. Now here, imagine the course of the Nile. Yeah. Now, if we look, one thing that got me into this thing, if you look at the pattern of the three pyramids of Giza, yeah. what I was uh, looking at at the time was a peculiar offset of the third smaller pyramid mm. to the left of the diagonal of the first two. Mm. And the minute I compared the map of the three pyramids to, this, to the three stars of the belt of Orion, suddenly I saw a pattern. Mm. It seems almost an extraordinary idea that they're bringing the sky down to the ground. But that's what all Egypt was all about. Yeah. The essence of the belief is that Egypt was itself a cosmic land, mm. a land that was the mirror of heaven. The interior of the pyramid of the pharaoh Unas is inscribed with extraordinary texts that offer a key to Egypt's mystery. Entering this secret underworld the first thing you observe is that there are stars everywhere. The ceiling is covered in stars. And this tells us that the ancient Egyptian idea of the afterlife was not a place of darkness and death, but a place of light and immortality in the heavens. It's a kind of chapel of knowledge, because Inscribed on the walls are the oldest surviving scriptures of mankind. These texts were written down more than 4,300 years ago from original documents now long lost and from oral traditions stretching far back beyond the memory of historians. If we want to reach out and connect ourselves to the world of spiritual ideas of our ancestors, to the forgotten past of mankind, then surely this is the link. Is it possible that we're looking at the legacy of a lost civilization here? Oh, Osiris the king, you have gone, but you will return. You have slept, but you will awake. You have died, but you will live. The tomb is opened for you. The doors of the coffin are drawn back for you. The doors of the sky are thrown open for you. These texts are describing the journey of the Pharaoh's soul to the domain of Osiris in the stars, to the Duat. Duat lay close to the constellation of Orion, 
which the Egyptians saw as the image of their god Osiris. The myths say Osiris came down from heaven to rule Egypt in the first time and that he was the teacher of mankind. Murdered by 72 conspirators, he was reborn as the star god Orion, ruling over the afterlife kingdom in the sky. His son Horus, usually depicted as falcon-headed, avenged the murder and restored his father's earthly kingdom. <laughs> 